Hello everyone, welcome to Dojo Talks. Today we are talking the World Championship match that just concluded today between Magnus Carlsen and Jan Nepomneshi. Um, we're going to get into our overall thoughts on the match and then we're actually going to be kind of like reading uh, all the different actors in this match, including the players, the commentary, the press, and, and so on. And the fans, too. We'll be rating the fans. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's get into it. Um, let me start with Jesse, because you were following the match uh, almost every day live on the channel. So what were your overall impressions on the match? Yeah, I thought uh, it was a really enjoyable match as a fan. Um, I think it was just kind of cool and encouraging for classical chess that there was so much interest in the match. And one of the hilarious things about it to me was, well, it's not hilarious, but in earlier dojo talks, Kostya said the dumbest thing he's ever said. But for a second, I was like, oh man, maybe he's right. I'm having some self-doubt. What did he say? He said that Maybe we shouldn't even do a world championship match. Maybe world championship matches should just be a tournament. There's no need to have a match. And I gave this long spiel about why they were cool and the psychological drama and how every there's a reason why people get into it and the tension between the two players at, that you don't feel in a tournament, that it just takes on a whole new level uh, where you got to face the same guy the next day and you get this psychological drama build up. And um, I feel like my, I was right, Kostian, you were wrong, but <laughs> what a great match. What a great match. And, you know, for the same reasons that the world championship match has always been such a compelling event with psychology, with physical endurance in a way that you just don't have in normal tournaments, you know? And a lot of it is the psychological fact of having to face the same guy, sometimes the same opening, a lot of times in these world championship matches. And I feel like that happened here too, where Jan had a really hard time uh, facing, let's call it the martial version of the Rui that uh, Magnus had put together. And just like, for example, Kasparov not being able to break the Berlin Wall in 1999 versus Kramnik. Similar kind of situation, similar psychological torment when you can't break through and then you lose your mind. Um, and yeah, I'm going to talk more about it, but I thought it was amazing. Also, just because of the explosion in chess and the ability for everybody to do the streaming, like I was one of hundreds of people doing streaming a variety of very strong GMs, you know, Yobava, Ivanchuk, all kinds of people, John Spielman, doing their own Twitch streams, beautiful. I thought it was just a real festival of the game in a way that we, we don't see the level of interest uh, in any other event. And myself as a fan too, that's the, the one event, you know, the, the only event that's second to this will be the candidates tournament. And that's gonna be this coming summer, I think that'll also be beautiful. But this is, of course, the reason why the candidates tournament is fun because we get to see who gets to play Magnus again. Okay, let me let me just clarify because this whole thing has been so so overblown. No, I really like the match too, and in general, I like I've always liked the World Championship match tradition. You got to unseat the World Champion. I've always liked that. What I was trying to say last time is there's just tons of problems with it. You know, and I still think it doesn't make sense to decide the world champion in this huge match and then decide a candidate in this like one random tournament where not all the best players get in. It's like such a, for such a important process to be treated like not a lottery, but like you really have to go through a lot of hoops to get to the end. In the candidates tournament, you know, that hasn't produced the second best player in the world multiple times as the challenger uh, or sometimes hasn't even produced the best player in the world that was my point it's just that there's a lot of issues with it but i do like the match and i did like this match very much um, it's always some of my favorite times i started following world championships i think really closely maybe with like anand gelfand but then really really i enjoy them as a fan starting with when magnus started to play in, in 2013 so for me they've been very very special uh, David, how about you? What do you think? Um, I think that the match was probably awesome. But unfortunately for me personally, I missed 
most of it um, because it was happening while I was sleeping and, uh, you know, and I, I just, you know, I had like a tired week or two and I uh, didn't have a lot of like time to watch it. I think, I mean, I enjoyed playing over the games, but I think it's like so much more compelling to watch them live. I mean, just so, so even though like I saw the games, I would say it's like missing them to not see them live. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it was probably great. I definitely saw some like exciting snippets. Um, you know, I, I popped onto Twitter now and then, and it seemed like everybody was really excited. So I feel like it had that, that, that piece Jesse mm-hmm. was alluding to of like, it was like a big deal and people were like in on it. Everybody's looking at the same thing, talking about the same thing. You know, there's like this feeling like, you know, a hundred million people across the world are all, you know, watching something together, which is pretty crazy feeling. Um, so I think it was probably awesome, but I, I definitely have a strong feeling of having missed out. Yeah. It seemed like every day there was like a new story or a new exciting thing happening. And yeah, there's nothing more fun than following the game live and then following on like Twitter and then like something happens and like everyone's tweeting about it at the same time. Um, it was, yeah, unfortunately I didn't get to catch most of the games. I could only catch like the tail end, but that would always be the first thing I check in the morning, even though they tell you not to check your phone in the morning, but I would check Twitter to see what happened in the world championship. And unfortunately, you know, some days I woke up, it wasn't that late, but I checked Twitter and I couldn't even figure out who won because people were just like talking about all kinds of other stuff related to the match, like the press conferences and all this stuff maybe we'll get into. Um, so yeah, some days it was actually hard to find the result. <laughs> just got it funny. And usually it was a drawn game that day, usually. Yeah, and one thing I'll say that, uh, you know, at the dojo, one of the things that I, I was doing as the commentary, and this was partly for selfish purposes, was, you know, not to use the computer at all. But the really genius thing about watching it live is once you digest the games uh, after they've been processed through the media. The media will create a narrative that's based on, by media, I just mean people tweeting and stuff, will create a narrative and the memes that were created that was you know, based on what they saw as the computer best move. And what's so cool, I think, is to first try to form your own opinion, and then in the press conference, to see what the players thought. And one of the nice things about this event where there were multiple games where we went to the press conference and the players clearly had a a different sense, a divergent sense of what the evaluation of the position was. Jan in particular was in general, overly optimistic about his chances in a variety of positions. So that was like a really interesting tension and just, you know, interesting like, you know, and then, and then you kind of look at what the other people were thinking. And yeah, there was amongst the, the commentary community of the stronger GMs, there's a divergent opinion as well on a variety of positions. So there was this beautiful debate in terms of watching it live that uh, I didn't anticipate. And it was really nice to have once, once I was inside of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the best things in all of chess is when people can argue, right? And so like, if you can have Magnus and Carlson play moves that are really, really at this high level, and then you can have GM sort of like who can't agree about the moves and argue back and forth about it. That's like, you know, just this huge clash of ideas, which I think is fantastic. And I think that often the computer evaluations kind of collapse those discussions. So that mm-hmm. for me, it's very important to like have my own take on the game first before being exposed to other people's takes. Now, if I could have watched it live, I would have been happy to watch it with, you know, a strong player and hear their opinions while thinking for myself. But I feel like if you if you click into something that's sort of more general, like like on Twitter, where lots of opinions have been mashed together and sort of come out, that that's too much of sort of a spoiler, and that I don't want to that I don't want to get till I play through the game. Um, and then I always you know, go back and see the comments and people are like, what an unbelievable blunder. And I'm like, 
I didn't notice it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it really kills all the intrigue when the computer evals enter the chat because it's like one per like okay someone blunders according to the engine then one person says it everyone starts repeating it and all of a sudden it's such an obvious blunder because everyone can see it <laughs> it's like without the engine i mean like i mean the players are playing at such a different level and it, it's really a shame because this ep this game six was extremely fascinating it was, it was so fun to watch like we watched it live it was such a like an epic game and uh, a lot of people they're or a lot of fans, I should say, their understanding of the game was that, like, oh, Nepo blundered in a drawn endgame. That that was the story of Game 6. Nepo right. blundered in a drawn endgame. It's, like, it's crazy. It's just such a distorted view of what actually happens in, like, a real-life uh, chess game. And that game had so many, like, ups and downs. Uh, so, yeah, just to boil it down to, like, the computer mistakes uh, is always kind of a shame. But I think you get that kind of stuff in all sports, so it's not something that's exclusive uh, to mm. chess fans can have all kinds of different takes and sometimes the popular takes aren't the most intelligent ones but that's what happens um yeah, yeah. and actually oh go ahead well okay so i was gonna jump in i was say um game six might be an interesting way to talk about what we think the overarching narratives of the match are so for example nepo in the concluding press conference does a psychological dodge on himself and he says oh uh i lost this match for non-chess reasons and i'm like really nepo buddy you lost it for non-chess reasons i disagree strongly there are some very interesting things though to do with experience where magnus was evil and one of the things about game six that was truly evil is magnus openly said i wanted to take it the game as long as possible to push this guy to the very end and then expect a mistake. And that is exactly what happened. I mean, game six, oh man, in terms of not just quality of play, but like the intention of taking a dude to the very end and dropping him off the edge of the earth. Oh man, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's just a thing of, competitive beauty a thing that you will not get in a tournament by the way this is that is an intention that has everything to do with the match and pushing your opponent over the edge right yeah in a tournament um, it does you no good to tire out somebody like crazy who's then going to play a different opponent <laughs> and then you're just going to be tired when you play your next opponent like you don't gain anything right so one of the things that, that i want to say that i think will be very hard to meet magnus uh, in a match, and you'd have to really understand the way he approaches this, is the man is evil. And um, it's interesting because he's got like a real, almost autistic sense of endgame, simple positions. Like, And so on top of that, though, he has a real psychological competitive uh, thing where this couple came out a couple, obviously I just described round six, but another game that I want to point to that was deeply psychological that the people looking at the computers didn't understand was uh, the second win in um, that was, um, oh my God, it's not listed in order, but- Queen A3 Queen a check taking the pawn on A7. Well, right, but before we get there, and, and I don't, you know, this is, we're doing this as a podcast, so we don't want to show positions, but it's very yes. simple. Imagine a symmetrical position with the king's, uh, white is castled and black is a king on E8, and black has just played h5 with the intention of mating white and the computers were all like oh play rookie one check play c4 and magnus plays queen e1 now here's let me just paint a picture here nepo thought for like 20 minutes on h5 to play a move like h5 you got to steal yourself you got to be like all right it's my turn i just got pushed over the edge of the earth and it's my turn to fight now well, you play the move and then Magnus says, you know what, buddy, I'm just gonna play queen e1. And now if you play king f8, I'm gonna defang your position entirely with bishop b4. The game isn't over then, but then you will be suffering. And instead of playing queen e7 after queen e1, which would be like the computer move, Magnus, I think, sensed that king f8 was gonna go down. Wow. And <laughs> Because, right, because you sense like there's the psychological tension of yeah. building up to play a move like H5 and then Queenie one's like, really, buddy? And then he can't stop 
then, then Nepo couldn't stop his momentum that he had initiated psychologically within himself to play h5. Then plays king f8, bishop b4, white's better. It's not over, but white's better. And then we're going to get a real Magnus Carlsen grind him position, you know? Then welcome to the jungle, my friend. <laughs> so the queen a3 mistake, honestly, that's another one where the computer people are like, oh, that's where it was lost. No, <laughs> let me tell you where it was lost, buddy. <laughs> queen e1, king f8. Queen e1 was a dark move, not the objectively best move, but even better than that. Interesting. And, you know, people were saying that about game six as well, because Nepo had a chance to trade queens earlier, but decides not to and go into this gf6 structure. Um, and I think, well, the engine said, I think that the, that decision was kind of okay, but um, it was, it's a very risky decision to like weaken your kingside structure with the queens still. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, that was shocking. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I think also that like after Queenie one check that King F eight was a big mistake from Nepo. Um, but it's interesting it's interesting to wonder, like you do, that Magnus could have somehow predicted that that was plausible that, that Nepo would would play King F eight to continue looking for an attack instead of playing Queenie seven. Mm -hmm. um uh and i do believe that in these matches the players get to know each other super well right so that magnus could have an idea of what nepo is gonna do is very very plausible to me mm -hmm. yeah yeah i also want to point in terms of a turning point in the match i feel like game five this is of course right before game six Nepo got a very nice position. I would say his best position ever mm -hmm. in the match. Uh, and that was a move 20. He could have played C4. I was doing commentary here at the dojo with James Altucher. And, yeah. and James was like, what about C4? And we were looking at it. I was like, dang, that's a powerful move, man. <laughs> and we saw a lot of stuff, man, that, that they, that, I mean, that was clearly the better move. And then, you know, there was, in, there was the, the, you know, someone, of course, at the comment, then that turned out to be the move the computer wanted to. Of course. The, we go to the commentary, I mean, the uh, post game, and they mention C4, and, you know, there's this real regret where Nepo realizes he misses his chance. And, you know, Nepo talked later about creating chances in the, in the event, but honestly, that was his last chance. You know, that was the last chance right there in, in game five. Big chance, yeah. anyway. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been like C4 White's winning, but it definitely just a very, I felt, clear advantage. Do you guys yeah. feel uh, like Nepo underperformed in the match? Like it should have been closer? Or do you think the result was justified? <laughs> oh, I, I, I mean, maybe the result is bigger than maybe it could have been. But, um, you know, I think Chess Numbers, friend of the dojo, follow him on Twitter, he did a nice podcast with uh, Ben Johnson, a perpetual chess podcast. Check that out. And he was saying just based on the numbers, you know, of our 14 game match and by, by the numbers, I mean the rating differential um, that because 14 games, the longer you go, the more that rating differential will show up in terms of the expected score. Mm -hmm. So just with the rating differential, you're looking at 90 plus percent chance of Magnus winning the match at the get-go. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine it like that, you know, winning the match 4-0 isn't an absurd uh, prediction for the match, you know? Yeah. I, think, um, I think as far as like performance over or under performance, it's really just a question of winning or losing the match. Like whether it's like two points or three points or four points doesn't right. make like that big a difference. Right. Mm. Because yeah. you could say like, Oh, you know, Nepo started bleeding at the end cause he was behind and couldn't catch up. But Magnus could have also just like agreed to draws and winning positions to win the match. Like you see that happen sometimes in matches. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, let's say Nepo had switched from the Petrov to like the Nidorf. Right. Uh -huh. And just like, and just gone for Magnus every game with white and black. Once he was down one point, he could have lost by like five or six points, you know, or he could have maybe come back. Right. But had he lost by six points, I wouldn't say like, oh, he like did worse than by playing the Petrov and getting one or two more draws 
to his like score, right? It would have just been like an attempt to win the match. And it's and is result-wise, I think the only thing you can say is who won or lost. And the number of points beyond that, I don't think you can judge too much. So you can the only other thing I think you can really judge on is the quality of the play. Which again, it's like hard. It's hard for somebody 400 points lower rated to judge like the quality of <laughs> of someone's play, right? But I personally, my own just sort of like subjective guessing at what I saw was that Nepo played pretty well. And, uh, you know, that he showed like pretty good toughness. And, you know, I think he put up really great defense in game six, which required a lot of stamina, which has been like a weakness of his in the past. I think he showed up a little bit, a little bit stronger and more and more stamina than before though of course that's still a big advantage of magnus's um and i think that he put a bit of pressure on magnus with his first three white games Mm -hmm. um and had chances on the black side of the catalan game so i i I think he i think he generated some chances and played and played pretty well and um you know going into it i thought magnus's chances of winning the match were more like you know 90 percent yeah yeah you know and uh and and then watching the match unfold or maybe even 95 percent, and watching the match unfold i sort of got a glimpse of a world where nepo could have won the match so that he even gave me like a glimpse of the fact that there was that possibility i think was pretty was pretty well done by him and one thing, there's a lot of things to talk about here. One thing I want to add to that about how the match progresses is that Magnus himself made a good point in the press conference where he said, look, uh, after a match is, we're talking about the draws, right? With the, the, we, we talk about people messing up world championship matches through commentary. It's, they're complaining about draws. In any case, so, you know, there'd been a bunch of draws in the Karyakin and the Karawana matches. And anyways, Carlson made the interesting point that in his match with Caruana, game one, he was lost. And if Caruana had won that game, that would have opened the match wide open. Whereas if you if that game then is drawn as it was, then the match kind of tightens up more into this series of draws. And I think one of the beautiful things about Magnus and his experience that you can't understand unless you've been through, into a world championship is precisely that kind of interesting insight that because, you know, from the outside, you're like, well, it's a game is a game. But no, <laughs> no, there's like something opens up after a 1-0, you know, after a 1-0 in a match. And then people have to start taking a little bit more chances. And there might be something more like tilt going on, which is, I think, a, a lot of what happened to, to Nepo. Yeah, um, a couple of matches started off with a quick win, like Topalov um, Anand started off 1-1 mm-hmm. with two wins. Yeah. And uh, I think the Kramnik-Laco match had a win in like round two for Kramnik that like really, um, also a two-rick endgame, by the way, if I remember correctly. Um, and then that kind of, yeah, those matches were, were very, were very, very fighting. Uh, on the draw thing, I think you really have to look at the quality of the games because, yeah, I felt like the... Carlson Caruana match was just twelve extremely interesting games. Carlson Kriakin yeah. I thought was also really interesting. A non Gelfan for me that match had quite a few lifeless draws where it was just kind of drawn without much fight or just out of the opening. Someone just showed really uh, good prep and, and simplified, and then there wasn't much play. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I thought all all the first five games in this match, the first five draws, they were all very interesting. So yeah, complaining about the result is kind of kind of silly <laughs> with you guys um I, yeah i think nepo did quite reasonably i mean it's it's really hard to beat magnus and when i think about the games that magnus lost i usually remember the ones where he uh, over pushes and that's why he loses i don't remember a lot of games where someone just outplays him start to finish so he right. lost this game to karyakin in their match i remember him like really pushing very hard every single game leading up to that mm-hmm. loss and then pushing really hard and losing that one. Um, but yeah, not a lot of players in the world that can just like beat Magnus. So very hard to expect that of, uh, of Nepo. Yeah. I mean, also I've been following Magnus very closely for a long time and I can only think of like three games that he's lost. <laughs> <Just total. laughs> so. 
One thing uh, I want to mention about Nepo and his performance, you know, obviously David said you can't judge him being lower rated, but I think there is a, a sense in which I have an intuitive sense of his, uh, let's call it a weakness. And that is, uh, I think you guys can relate to this. If you're playing in a tournament, it's sometimes easy to make a move quickly. And we call that being impulsive, right? And that is definitely a weakness that I see in Nepo. I see it in myself. I see it in a lot of my students. It's hard to sit there and have the energy to really go through the specifics of a move instead of just kind of trusting your intuition. And um, I think if to make a sports metaphor, when you're playing basketball and you're tired, the thing that you're going to do is you're going to take the easy shot from the outside. And I think when you're really pushing it in a chess game, you've got to sit on the hard decisions and really find depth, more depth in them than just making the impulsive move. And I know I've been guilty of that. And I know that, uh, especially like when you're exhausted or even especially you're on tilt, you're going to make, you're going to be tending towards making that impulsive move. And the, uh, obviously the famous one that the computer people will have their narrative on, but I think is important to, to note here as a, one of the critical moments of the match is um, the third loss where Jan felt like he was pressing. This was the English opening. And I think it was around move 20 or something, 20, 20 something. And uh, he plays this disastrous C5. And what's so fascinating about that game to me was that in my naive take on the game, I thought white was better. And uh, Nepo, interestingly, also thought he was better for like the whole game. Magnus was like, no, I'm fine, <laughs> I'm fine. And so the interesting thing about C5 that I understand is that if you believe you're better in that position, C5 is the, Rook, Rook A4 had just been played, so you're threatening the pawn. The only really way to push the position, to push for an advantage is to play C5. So if you believe that you are better in that position, by process of elimination, you'll say, well, C5 is my only chance for an advantage, so don't need to think about it, let's roll. An impulsive decision, an example of an impulsive decision that comes about through Magnus playing beautiful defensive moves like Queen B4. And then all of a sudden, boom, game over, match over, you know, gone. And uh, that's an example of the impulsive moves. And I think there's a variety of positions where I felt like he moved impulsively. Sometimes those moves weren't bad, but I was just like, wait a second, boss, you're going to be moving that quickly in this position? And yeah, I think that's a definite problem for Nepo. And people had remarked on that even before this, this tournament, you know, this match, that he was an, had a problem of of playing impulsively. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what separates him from the 2800 class. And, you know, ultimately maybe is even like a, you know, you need a stronger health, stronger constitution to sit there and really think on moves where you think you know the answer, but then Magnus, you watch him, dude, even when he was winning, he was conscientious about his moves, man. Conscientious, he wasn't just moving. Yeah, it was really impressive difference to me. I think that um, when you have an evaluation in mind, like you said, it's like it has a huge effect on what variations you see or don't see, right? Mm -hmm. You just have this bias to confirm and there are certain things you don't look for. Right. So if you think you're better and you see a line that looks good for you, it doesn't surprise you. You don't try as hard to refute the line. If you see a line that looks bad for you, you like fight like heck to find the improvement that makes it you know, match your evaluation. Um, so walking around with a, with a misevaluation is a super, super dangerous thing to do. And maybe one of the interesting things that leads to that in this match and elsewhere is that Magnus understands that he can defend a lot of positions that look bad to other people. Maybe not everybody, you know, maybe some other people understand those positions too, but like that position looked bad to you, right? That he had that game. It looked bad to Nepo. It looked bad to me as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, following Magnus for years, I've seen him play a bunch of positions that I thought were just bad. 
I've seen him play like e6, d5 in the queen's gambit, and then maybe even c6 and just play bishop b4 check and trade his dark squared bishop. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you, you can't do that. So, like, I see a lot of his games, you know, and I think like, oh, that position looks bad. Oh, that position looks bad. Maybe he's just like, you know, trying to get people out of book by playing bad moves on purpose or, or this or that, you know, but like at some level, there've got to be a lot of positions that he knows how to defend that are encouraging to opponents that, that other people don't understand that it's just okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there's probably like a whole set of positions that he understands in a way that a lot of other people don't. And then this is a way that it, you know, can, can backfire on Nepo or others. He lures people in. Like Jesse said, he, Magnus is evil. He is inherently just an evil person inside. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, over during the game, during the game, uh, outside, yeah, he's cool, he's cool. But like during the game, he's just he tricks people. He's uh, very clever. Well, let's let's rate some key key factors. If you guys are down, right. um, I think we should start just like overall players perform. Maybe we could give people like an A through F grade. Like, how would you rate each player? I think Magnus is in his prime, dude. I don't know how long it's going to last, but he's in his prime. And I think Nepo played like the 2740 player that I think he is. Oh. That's what I think. That's my, you know, that's that's my, yeah. Magnus, wow. dude. Magnus is amazing. Incredible. Um, I would give Magnus an A because he won the match without <laughs> without losing a game. Uh, was never really in trouble from what I could see. Uh, and I would give Nepo like a B minus. I think he, he did okay. He definitely could have could have done better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fair. I'm going to give Nepo a B. I mean, there, there's a big unanswered question, but I don't know whether we should address it like while rating the players or, or while rating their teams. Maybe you can tell me mm-hmm. where you want me to talk about it, Kostya. But like, to me, the big what if about the match is like, what if Nepo didn't play the Petrov as black? Mm. Um, so I don't know if we should rate Nepo for that decision or the team or like, you know, the team and, and performance, which is coming up. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's hard to hard to assign that yet to just one. It seems like it's, it's just everyone's I'm sure everyone had a role in that decision. Um, but yeah, how would you rate the teams? <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, if I'm just rating his play, I'll, I'll stick with my B. Okay. Um, if we want to rate the teams, I think the Magnus team outprepared. So I would give the Magnus team an A. Um, and the Nepo team, I'm, I'm heavily thinking about the decision to play the Petrov, like, and, um, and to play 1E4, because I would have also played not 1e4 against Magnus. Um, so I think that they chose the wrong openings. It seemed like Nepo was like well prepared as far as like predicting what some of what Magnus would do, knowing a bunch of moves, like blitzing out the openings like super confidently. But like if you can't play those positions better than Magnus, it's no it's no use to mm. like know the position, but it's like a bad choice, right? Like so um so I would give the the team as a whole, which I guess partially still includes Nepo, I would give them a C because I, I don't think the opening choices were right. And I think especially once he's like down a point and like the openings aren't working, there should have been a plan B. And I remember we talked about this before the match, right? And we said, of course, you've got like different plans for like, if you're ahead, if you're equal, or if you're behind, like you've got three different scenarios and potentially a different approach, including different openings for those. Hey, I mean, he just kept playing the Petrov when he's like behind. Um, and he kept playing 1e4 when it wasn't threatening Magnus very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I rate poorly, actually, the, the choice of openings played. I think once he was in the games, he played to his abilities. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I guess I'll just add that um, I think one of the beautiful things about a World Championship match is that a lot of times uh, an opening comes out of it and that influences everybody down the food chain. And the Shveshnikov that Magnus played against Fabi, a lot of beautiful new ideas there and everybody and their mom started playing it after that. And here, 
I think what we're going to see actually is we're going to see people moving from the Berlin approach to E4 to now a Marshall approach to E4. And one of the things that Magnus did that is a little bit to do with the team, but also just to do with Magnus is the decision on A4 to play Rook B8. Just this very solid defensive move after which you got to believe that White's a little better, but that if he has a sense of how that position works, which he did, then it's like, no, <laughs> you might think you're better, your buddy, but I, you will not beat me in this position. And so that was an interesting, really, thing about the match. One of the reasons I think matches have uh, such a different level uh, in terms of openings than um, normal tournaments, because you're going to have to face it again. And then he tried. He kept trying to slam his head against that uh, Berlin, or excuse me, that, that Marshall with the anti-martial and it just didn't work man it just didn't work and ooh, yeah could he have done other openings kind of kind of the c4 thing i was happy to see but it mm -hmm. didn't really do anything the petrov i mean he got mostly equal positions and even when it went wrong with the queenie one move he still was you know technically okay so i don't think it you know ultimately it wasn't the openings that lost him the battle yeah oh so i yeah i yeah i don't i don't have strong feelings about him having yeah it's an interesting question that is interesting i don't have strong feelings in the opening yeah there's also a good point made in the in the chat you know magnus played a lot more dynamically in in the opening against fabi than he did against nepo mm. thinking about mm -hmm. it just like overall like yeah magnus definitely felt like he uh was trying to make the positions as dynamic as possible against Fabi and take him into really mm. sharp positions, especially with Black taking on a lot of risk. Against Nepo, it felt like he's just trying to play like really simple, quiet positions and mm. then just mm -hmm. outplay him, grind him out somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe it's partly, uh, well, of course it's, it's Magnus, but it's probably uh, his overall like team's approach and their strategy. Yeah. I bet they probably consider that quite a bit. And uh, actually I actually want to say there have been some really interesting video series on Chess24 where they've had like Peter Heine and Fresene like discuss Magnus's approach to like some of his previous matches. And yeah, they really like, they think about it very conceptually and I think they, uh, they're very deliberate and intentional about what they do. I feel like Magnus on Twitter and his team sometimes they, they have this image like they're always just like having fun and playing blitz and like yeah. too, weak, too slow, this kind of thing. But they're really, really very... I think specific about how they approach the match and very careful and professional about it. Now they have all this experience as well. So it's very hard to beat them for Nepo. Of course, this is his first match and um, for his team, you know, maybe first time they're all working together. I'm not sure, but you know, probably they, they've never done like a, you know, huge world championship match altogether. Right. Um, not together, but I mean like Karyakin is like certainly has relevant experience. But not like as a second, you know, helping prep someone like Magnus. I, he reminds me of like the New England Patriots, just like a well-oiled machine. It's like oh, yeah. Tom Brady and everyone's just kind of helping and supporting and all the, all the you know, the characters are pretty much the same. It's yeah. interesting. I saw on Twitter, actually, they posted a photo. With, it was uh, Peter Heine, Fresene, Dubov, and I think Jordan Van Forest as like the team. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is interesting because like Dubov, it wasn't clear was going to be helping Magnus. So I guess I guess he was. Yeah, when you talk about like a well-oiled machine, like they even know what time zone to be in, so that they can work while <laughs> Magnus is asleep. That's part of like the well-oiled machine. Yeah, Jan Gustafsson's contribution, figuring out the right time zone, <laughs> so they can be in like Thailand while they work the match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's important, right? I mean. I think you it's a great idea. Plays, you like, play while he sleeps. He wakes up. The work's ready. Yeah, I mean, I I was reading the Anon files. You know how Anon seconds had to work. You know through the night every single day. Like got no sleep. Yeah. It was like a traumatic experience for them. So yeah, it totally makes sense. Now you can communicate with the team remotely that they would be working. Um, I don't know where they were for this match, but yeah, their idea has always been that they're in a time zone where they can work during their day while Magnus is sleeping. So somewhere across the world. Uh, yeah. Like I think against Caruana, they were in, in Thailand, if I remember correctly, but not sure. Um, all right, how do you guys rate the venue, uh, Dubai? 
Well, it seemed beautiful, dude. It seemed great. Yeah. <laughs> Looked fine to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Looked very nice. I wasn't there. That yeah. was the one part about, you know, <laughs> that was the one part I wasn't in on. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't there either. Maybe we just don't, maybe we just don't know and can't comment too much. Yeah, it looked like there was a lot of room. I, I was at London for a little while. There wasn't a ton of room there for um, mm. spectators and, and press and stuff. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not sure if they would have had enough room back then for everyone that wanted to attend the match. Um, yeah, yeah I, I just want to say something obvious. You know, one of the beautiful things about uh, the online world is, you know, when I was a kid and Karpov Kasparov was going on, oh, we'd wait months until you figured out what was going on in that thing. And you had no access to the hidden dramas of the match as it was unfolding. And now it's just like, oh man, the the venue honestly could be anywhere, but the game is you know worldwide. Worldwide people are covering this thing. And that's what's so cool about it. You know, it's almost like the venue has, it's more than just the place itself. It's the entire internet and the ecosystem around the match, which made it awesome. Dude. Awesome. I loved it. Yeah, it was great just to see how many different uh, commentary teams there were. And um, yeah, we could just jump to rating the the commentary. I mean, it was <laughs> there's just so many people doing it. It was like Caruana for chess.com, Kramnik Svidler doing it, Geary was doing it. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, people were spoiled, spoiled for choice, of course, um, which I think it was was really, really uh, good. And oh, Anand was doing it for FIDE, of course, like the official world, <laughs> the commentary. I mean, this one might have been the best ever. I feel like Carlson Caruana uh, was also really good uh, a few years mm -hmm. ago. But yeah. Um, yeah, I was curious, not just if you thought the commentary was great, but if you had any like thoughts about which commentary was the best like which like did you see any of them and did you have like a preference of where to go yourself that's the unfortunate thing is that i, I just didn't have time to like i would have loved i would love to watch like every six hours of everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but it was just not possible also i was waking up you know after the games were more or less um over so i would only then catch the highlights later on yeah. um if i could just watch like live i i think i'd probably choose kramnik Spidler. I think that would be my choice. What are you talking about me, buddy? What about the dojo? Get out of here. I would tune into Jesse. I would wake up, oh, tune into man, our channel first. Oh, oh, no, I, I'm man. serious. That's what I would do. I'm saying <laughs> if I could watch from the beginning, definitely Kramnik's uh, with her. <laughs> I mean, I think basically the only game I got to watch live was game six with Jesse. So that was the one choice I made. I would have loved to try out some of the others. Um, and that's, again, one of my big like regrets with the match is that I couldn't watch it all um uh, i one thing i saw was i saw these little clips uh on chess.com of like funny things with uh fabi like oh, you know cooking eggs for hess and like and them like waiting to pick him up in the airport and stuff like that i thought that stuff was hilarious um so so i enjoyed that um that piece of chess.com's work I would give that a solid A, those little Fabi skits. Yeah. Yeah, once in a lifetime chance there. <laughs> and how do you feel about the the Twitter coverage overall? Because there are so many people out there like tweeting about the match. Do you think they helped the match? Was there any disservice? You know, people, let's say promoting the false narrative or complaining about draws. I think that's one thing we all kind of hate is the people that complain about draws. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything else? I felt like there were only kind of controversies. There was a bunch of people upset at some of the questions in the, oh, the press conferences, uh, of course. press conferences. But honestly, I didn't, I didn't take any offense to, to that. And I thought one of the cool things actually about the press conferences was it wasn't just chess people asking the questions, right? It was just people from, let's say, Norway or someplace that just were there and they had no idea about chess and were going to ask whatever they were going to ask. And that's cool because that's like the full spectrum of people watching the match. And I talked to like uh, 
some people who knew nothing about the match and they were getting it from sites that I had never even heard of, you know? And I was like, what site? And, you know, they, they would be telling me, so they just, you know, Google it and they're going to find some, you know, this, and, and it just turned me on to the fact of how big the ecosystem is out there of different people covering the match from like Nate Silver at 538 to the guardian to all these other people. Hugely, huge, disparate, you know, voices, some of which have no idea about even how the pieces move, which was fine. I thought that was great, dude. Yeah. Oh, actually, I will say one thing about the commentary ratings that I forgot. Um, somebody in, in stream mentioned that they had an eval bar on the chess.com commentary. Yeah. So, so even though I found the skits with Fabi to be funny, and even though I love um, Danny and Robert, I think they're really great commentators. I literally would not have ever watched their broadcast because of the eval bar. That would have just been like a hard, like, I can't watch it. Like I, I you know, I'm just not allowed to not for one second. Um, that's just a disqualifier. So no matter how great they are, that kind of makes their commentary unwatchable, which I guess is kind of like an F for the, for the actual. Well, most of them, most of them were using it. Like Anish was using it. Uh, There was all kinds of people using the eval bar. Yeah. So anybody who had an eval bar, I would unfortunately have to give them an F, even if they're a great commentator. (laughs) Mm. I'm with you. It's super annoying, and it's it's not for us. Like the eval bar, Uh, I would still watch the commentary though if I had like unlimited time. I I think even with the eval bar, anything like Fabi says about a chess position or like Anish, I think that's still 100% worth it. Um, but shout out to Anand, who I, I believe no eval bar, <laughs> right? <laughs> Just doing it by yeah. hand, uh, and yeah, actually Anand as well. His commentary I've always found to be re- really, really insightful. Like he he just doesn't doesn't hold back. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I, we talked about this with David uh, when we were covering Game Six. I really hate that they uh, have the players together for the press conference. I think after the game, the players should just be separated. And ask, no, ask buddy, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's part of the psychological drama. Let them <laughs> sit there together. What are you kidding me? What, Come what, on. What drama? It's just, it's just awkward. It's just, it's just so <laughs> awkward. Magnus, do you feel bad for your opponent? Like, what, what is this? Like, <laughs> you know, now we could say maybe that's a bad question, but the fact that they got to sit together afterwards and have the psychological composure to pull, hold it together. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's great. Well, what what's a that's good question great. then, Jesse? I just don't. It's like other than talking about the game, I don't understand what they're gonna say when the other person's right next to them. Well, I think as again, I think there's um, the people who don't know anything about the game. They want to know about like the only access they have to it is like, okay, Nepo, talk to me. What it feels like to lose. <laughs> you know, that's their insight into the game. Let them ask the question. Whereas for me. I was fascinated when they were talking about giving a sense before they had seen the computer about what they thought the evaluation of the position was. I thought that was amazing. And I want them to be side by side. I want to see like Magnus's reaction when Nepo says that he's better. You know, I was like, oh yeah, this is great, man. This is great. (laughs) Yeah. Ask them for their thoughts on, on the game. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I see your point. It is nice when the players are kind of, uh, like back and forth bantering about the game, but mm-hmm. a lot of them don't don't want to do that with their opponent, and I I feel like honestly it's not wise to do that if like you're gonna give something away, like you're gonna play this guy for the next twelve games. Um, so I don't know, showing that you like calculated some line fully or that you didn't calculate the line fully, I think that's kind of a big risk. Like you're giving away a lot of info to the opponent. Or yeah. let me put it, imagine this moment. After game six, it's 12.30 at night, their time. They're sitting there in the press conference and Magnus openly says, I wanted to take him all the way. I wanted to take him the distance. <laughs> so not only are you not, you're not gonna conceal that, you're gonna tell him exactly what went down. Okay, yeah. but, but Jesse- Oh, that was fantastic. Jesse, We're gonna let you my, know. We're gonna let you know how I did you. Here's oh, my main baby. point, Jesse, because I, I feel like I'm gonna flip this around on you. I think you would get a lot more of those moments if the players uh, were separated. I don't think Nepo has to be right there for that moment to be awesome. If Magnus says that privately, that moment still goes viral and Nepo will still uh-huh. see it. And maybe we'll even get his reaction in the future. But Anand is never going to say that with his opponent sitting next to him. He might say that when he's getting interviewed privately. And I would say the same uh-huh. for like MVL, Ding Loren, Caruana. All these guys are sheepish. They don't want to like 
talk or gloat or say anything when their opponent uh-huh. is right there. I, I don't know. Yeah. I felt the same thing. Much more likely to talk and say something real. If and I think Anand would never even tell you that. Certainly not until the match was over. He's not <laughs> no, going to he reveal his strategy. He would never say that. That was it. Was a it was a master psychological stroke. Though. And I got to also say uh, as a shout out, our friend of the dojo, Mike Klein, was doing these right after the match. He would catch him. He caught Nepo at least a bunch of times and and asked like right away, you know, his impressions before they even went to the press conference. So there was also the asking uh, alone a part as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that's cool. I just think we've had very few of these moments where the players actually <laughs> said something of use in the press conference. And most of it is just torture for the player. They, they just play this eight hour game and now they have to, they're asked like, what's their favorite fast food joint, you know? <laughs> Let them ask, dude. Let them ask. Let them ask. Oh, yeah. no. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah. I, would I mean, that. I will say that, like, I heard a lot more about the questions than about the answers. People are like, this was a dumb question. This was a dumb question. I never even heard what the answers were. So for whatever they did, none of the answers they got out of the players were anything that that carried you know, that they got to me. This is the first I'm hearing an answer is is what you guys are talking about now with Magnus saying that he wanted to go to the distance. I hadn't heard a single answer relayed. So they didn't, I don't know. They didn't succeed at bringing out too much from questions, what I can Questions stole the show, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, let's just say in even recent world championship history, it's not always the case that both players show up, you know? There's been several press conferences that were missed after the after a loss. And that's kind of cool too. Are you gonna show up? Are you not gonna show up? Oh, great. I love it, man. Press conference is part of the best one of the best parts of the show for me as a fan. Oh yeah. No, another great example. We probably would have heard what Magnus actually thought about the game he lost to Kriakin if he was just interviewed immediately and away from his opponent. At least immediately. I think he left because it was like getting delayed. Um, but if he was just interviewed, he would have probably said something and okay if he leaves he leaves but then we get that we get that same moment mm-hmm. yeah um well okay i mean that's just that's just my thought and i think we'd get a lot more interesting answers if uh if the player <laughs> didn't have his opponent right next to them um, just like you know when everything moved online and the players mm-hmm. had to play on zoom cameras we saw a lot more mm. reactions, even though they're still on camera. The fact that mm. you're not in front of your opponent, we saw a lot of the players like we saw their blunder face, and you know we saw a lot more emotion through the uh-huh. virtual game because you're in your room. You think you're alone. It's just so much more natural to give your uh, genuine emotion there. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Same thing. But you're not going to argue that we should now be playing the world championship by Zoom, I hope, Kostya. Oh, no, Kostya, no, no, don't no, tell it. Not. Don't say it, buddy. No, He's like, if you, wanna, if you want to revive this archaic and pointless tradition of having a world championship match, <laughs> yeah. you better at least do it in your pajamas at home so we can see the real personality come through. It's not a bad idea. It's your idea. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> um, okay. Well, maybe final question. Yeah. How long do we think Magnus can last? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. One of the dojo talks that I'm going to pre-advertise, we're going to talk about aging and chess. Uh, As an old dude, I have some at least anecdotal evidence about it. And one of the things that we got to say about chess in that in my lifetime, it's gotten much younger. There used to be a lot more people over 40 at the top, and now there just isn't. And prior to this, I thought I was beginning to see the first bit of cracks in Magnus's play. But, you know, now after this match, it's like, oh, no, he's still at his prime. He's at 2865. He's close to the top, his top, you know, he's getting there. And um, how long will it last? It's hard to say. And a part of it is the challengers like Will Ferrugia, like, for example, I think Fabian Ding could definitely be challengers, but I don't think their performance is ever going to go significantly north of 2,800, like their performance rating north of 2,800. Ferruja, maybe, maybe he could be 2,850, you know? And that's what you would, you know. (laughs) So there's that question, but also, of course, just with every year, you got to imagine that Magnus's uh, ability to retain his edge gets 
harder to maintain. And one of the things about Magnus and the way he plays is like to, to go take somebody out in an eight and a half hour game or whatever it is, you need like youth. You need some youth to do that, man. Um, and the way he plays, right, with the very exact end game play, I think you need youth. So like, is there gonna, when are we, it's not a question of if, it's like, when are we gonna start seeing the cracks in that performance? Yeah. I think that the cracks we've seen in Magnus so far might have been more to do with motivation than with age for now. Mm. Right. Because like at some point when there's no, I mean, there's all kinds of psychological aspects to being number one or number two or world champion or anything. Right. Like I think at some point, you know, different world champions have had different psychological issues. You know, Fisher was probably scared to play a match with Karpov, right? Despite how good he was. <clears throat> and I think Magnus may have lost some some motivation because he was just winning and winning and winning. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, the, but, but you point out that you need like a challenger because the gap between Magnus and the best players over the last 10 years has just been too big. Even when he lost 40 points off his rating, right? From 2880 to 2840. Yeah. And they're like, oh, if Caruana beats him in this match, he could even pass him by rating. Um, even when he lost like 40 points and everyone's like, oh, is it done for him? He was still the highest rated player in the world, you know? Like, yeah. like Magnus in like full on tanking was still the best player in the world. And that's the truth. He never wasn't the best player in the world, yeah. you know? And, you know, he got his mojo back. And, and the gap is like, you know, 50 plus points, which at that level, it's like, you know, it's like like a spoonful of black hole, the density of like chess ability and knowledge uh-huh. that, that he has, that like gap of 50 points. It's like, you can't even like measure it for other people. So he yeah. needs a different challenger, you know? Um, and so part of how long he'll keep it is just like, who's on a trajectory that they could like potentially play like him. Yeah, and right? actually, and we give a plug again for the press conference. He was asked at this final one about Ferruja and he said that his performance at the uh, Grand Swiss and then now the European Team Championship, he was like, yeah, that's what's motivating me right now. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's a good answer, Magnus. That's a good answer, buddy. And he does. He needs somebody like Ferruja to make him a little scared at night, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's going to make him work. And I think exactly, I think for years now, it's been like when you're at that level, what is going to motivate you to grow your game? in some way and then like even try to imagine for magnus how could he grow his game hard to hard to imagine but maybe Ferruja is the one to push him to the next level yeah. i mean so far he's the only one who's shown that he could right and even then it's like okay like maybe he could play the match with magnus in two years right like maybe mm-hmm. Ferruja at his best with the current system would have a 50 percent chance to qualify right because it's just such mm-hmm. a grueling system i mean i'm i'm very bullish on Ferruja, but you know maybe he's got a 50 percent chance to qualify then maybe he's got a 50 percent chance to win the match you know then he has to wait another two years and qualify again like no matter how good Ferruja is like it still feels like it could like there could be a few more years for magnus and it, if it requires somebody other than Ferruja, and you have to look younger because there's no guarantee that Ferruja hits 28 60 in his life right yeah if you have to look past Ferruja, then who's your next challenger? Nobody there has yet proven that they're 2,800 plus um, mm-hmm. among the upcoming crop of prodigies, though there are some options, but probably all of them would need like four years as well to be 2,800. Yeah, it's going to be a while. Yeah, you never know. You might see some other players that are already known kind of take a leap, leap up like... Um... Like, I could see Van Forrest actually getting to 2,800 if he took another jump up. And I feel like, actually, Dubov has room to grow as well. He could no. be one of the, the no. elites. Maybe Players not. from Magnus's own team. But they're, I mean, their trajectory, they they're have... already over 20. I, no, I know. They, they should be happy to get to 2,750, I think. But, you know, a couple uh, of years ago, no one was thinking Nepo would ever play a world championship match. He was just yeah. like, I still think it's a surprise that he played. <laughs> I still think it's a surprise. That's right, buddy. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to give a shout out. I think uh, this kid, Essie Penko has a shot. I think this kid, Abu, Tur- I can't pronounce his name. Abu Tur- 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 yeah. Whatever. That kid has a shot. And as a dark horse in this candidates tournament, I don't think Duda should be underestimated. The guy's been playing some very interesting. Yeah, Duda chess, could take a step really up. hard. 
So that guy, I can imagine uh, doing something at the candidates tournament as well. Okay. And we got to see if is Ding going to qualify, for example. Ding has like a has a small chance of qualifying. That dude needs to get on it. This is kind of his last chance for Ding here. Yeah, I think that Richard Rapport has a great chance to hit 2,800. I think oh, okay. he could. Fair. Yeah. I think that he could be like in the conversation of top five players over the next like five or so years. And I think if you look younger, one of the most talented players, period, is Arjun Aragaisi. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, I think in like 10 years, right, it's just going it, to, like all the Indian juniors are going to be growing yeah. up. Like, the thing is, I oh, think Aragaisi started later than some of the other prodigies. Yeah. So he's like 18, and, the, and then these other Indian GMs are like 15 or 16. So like you think of them automatically because they're younger. So you assume it's like that trajectory. I think Eric Icy might have started playing a little bit later than them, and his talent is just, and the quality of his play is just insane. Um, and I don't know if anybody noticed because of the World Championship, but he won the uh, this like Tata Rapid version mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in India like a week ago, and he's like he's like as good as Levon Aronian at Rapid Chess already. Yeah. So you give you like a sense of where he's at right now, and his classical is a bit behind that, but. I think he's somebody who could like challenge for world champion, but again, it would it would have to be like six years from now, probably for him. Yeah, they all need they all need a bump. Uh, personally, I think uh, Nihal Sarin. I, I I don't know. I feel like he's just got a ton of potential. He would be if I had to choose one kid. <laughs> he would be. Uh -huh. He would be the one. Um, but yeah, yeah. Ferruja. I mean, so so strong, so impressive. I feel like. We'll definitely see him either in two years or four years against Magnus. How long do you think Nihal would would need to play a match for the World Championship? Um, maybe four to six years. Okay. I think four done. is really aggressive. I think four would, would be no. I mean, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, things are accelerating, so who knows? They are. Yeah. <laughs> who knows how it goes? If uh, yeah. if I had to guess. I would, on average, give Magnus another four years. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like a bell curve, right? There's like maybe a 20% chance that he loses in two years and a 30 or 40% and maybe like a 30% chance he loses in, in four years and then another 30% chance he loses in six years, something like that. To be clear, let's just do, I, I like what Chess Numbers is doing. Imagine it's a, a match of 14 games and to do, you know, like some people were saying, okay, uh, they thought the match, there was a 60% chance that Magnus was going to win and only a 40% and a 40% chance that Nepo would win, which I thought was insane. And then Chess Numbers correctly pointed out to have that over 14 games, you only, that's like a, an ELO difference of 10 to 15 points. You know, <laughs> that's why we got up to the 90 plus uh, percentage by the difference that we had here. So when we say that Magnus has a 20% chance to lose next time around, that's imagining that someone is, you know, well over, well north of 2,800 as the challenger, which could be, could be, but, you know, Magnus right now, 2,865. <laughs> So, you know, if you come out, if you come challenge him and you're 2815, oh, dude, your chance is still not good. Still not great, you know? And that's the actual difference between you. Mm, that's tough. I think, I think if Ferruja makes the jump, then we have a chance in, in two years. But otherwise, I can easily see Magnus winning for 10 more years, dude. And then, and then, you know, the decline was going to set in, but we see that his match experience is incredible. It's incredible. For 10 more years, he'd be 40. Yeah, I know. That would be pretty old for a world champion in our, in our era. Yeah. I mean, but think about Kasparov, man. That guy went from like, what, 83, 84 to 1999. And that could have gone further. That could have yeah. gone longer than that. If he just played against Shirov like he was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> really messed it up there <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean no engines no computers back then right i mean just just getting started right but mm -hmm. today's generation i feel like they're learning at such an accelerated rate that yeah to the last 15 years i think is remarkable today 
Yeah. So they're learning at an accelerated like rate, but that stuff you got to do to get past 2,800, I don't know that there's any shortcuts at that point. Like, I, yeah, that's, that's tough. Maybe not. But um, so, uh, yeah, classical chess, dead, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no more intrigue, no more, no more interest. Sorry, everyone. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. I think we'll call it there, guys. What do you say? Yeah, beautiful. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. That'll be it. Uh, make sure to subscribe, follow to the podcast. We're going to be posting it uh, on YouTube with the video version as well as all the main podcast platforms as an audio version. Um, and, yeah, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next time. Yeah, bye look, bye. Forward, look forward to Dojo Talks. Carlson versus Perugia in two years. That's right. <laughs>